Thank you for listening to the Theatrical Mustang Podcast. It's episode 82 with Aaron Brindley. Aaron is the co-founder of Cafe Nordo, which uses theater and food to tell innovative and immersive stories. We talk about food as a character, Aaron's inspiration behind some of her creations, and the incredible menu that she has created for Cafe Nordo's current 1960s spy thriller, To Savor Tomorrow. To Savor Tomorrow brings audiences into the elite world of air travel in the 1960s, when feasts consisting of more than a bag of stale nuts was the norm. The show opens April 7th and runs through Sunday, June 5th. Tickets are available at www.cafenordo.com. That's C-A-F-E-N-O-R-D-O.com. Thank you so much. I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I did. Uh, It made me really hungry. So grab a snack before you listen to it. Thank you to today's sponsor, Island Shakespeare Festival. ISF is Whidbey Island's professional regional repertory theater. Their 2016 summer season runs July 8th to September 11th with As You Like It, directed by artistic director Susanna Rose Woods, Julius Caesar, directed by award-winning Seattle director Corey McDaniel, who's also the producing artistic director of Theater 22, and finally Julie Beckman will direct her award-winning adaptation of Jane Eyre, which premiered at Book It Rep in 1999. For more information about Island Shakespeare Festival, visit their website at www.islandshakespearefest.org and check out their Facebook page. Thank you so much for being here today. Uh, this is Olina. I'm hosting all on my own. I'm not in for Katie. It's just because I'm doing it. I don't have to say that. I discovered. You are. Earlier today. In for yourself. I'm in for myself. Uh, <laughs> here with Erin Brindley, who um, is the creator of Cafe Nordo. And, and what would you... Co-creator. My titles, my specific title is uh, artist, Executive Artistic Director, and I'm also the chef. title. Oh, f- oh, oh, okay. Oh. So I wear a lot of Got hats it. around here. Neato. I do have a creative partner who's upstairs on a ladder right now, as he's wont to do. He does the scenic design and writes the shows. Cool. Um, but yeah, that, so I, and I often no direct, right. <laughs> just, you know, those couple, th- couple things. <laughs> um, I often direct the plays, although this particular one we have Kira McDonald in, the one we're working on now. Mm-hmm. Um, but I have directed all of the original productions of Cafe Nordo, as well as designed all the menus. Cool. So tell me about Cafe Nordo. So, what is Cafe Nordo and Well, why? Cafe Nordo, for lack of better description, is <laughs> a, a riff on dinner theater. Okay. It's an, also a riff on immersive theater. So we're combining those two ideas. So we ask our audience to come in. We give them a reason to be in the saloon in the Western or in, on, in this case, the show we're working on now, on an airplane. They're all passengers on an airplane in 1960s when airplane lounges were awesome and the food on planes was... Amazing. Yeah. So very different from today, but um, even the '90s, it was even okay in the '90s. It was okay in the '90s. It yeah. was fun to fly in the it '90s. It was. There was spaghetti sometimes. Sometimes and chicken that wasn't yeah revolting. Yeah. <laughs> but we looked at all these old menus from the '60s, and it was oh, like fun. filet mignon and oh I mean really amazing stuff. So that was pretty fun. But what we do is we bring the audience in. Uh, the the world surrounds them. The shows often happen in real time, 
So in this case, again, we're hurtling towards Seattle, towards the Seattle World's Fair in 1962 on an airplane, and it happens over the course of the flight. Um, and there are spies, and they're all posed as stewardesses and bartenders, so they're the ones that are serving your meal while this spy spoof kind of unfolds around you. Um, so our audience is often a fly on the wall, but in a very immersive environment. And every show comes with a four to five course meal along with a, either a wine pairing or a cocktail flight. It's all specifically designed to be a character in the show. And the shows often uh, in, integrate either food history, food mythology, food politics, food science, uh, it, so there is an, a food element to the shows, and your food also helps tell the story. Cool. That's really cool. What inspired that? How long How long? Have well, we've been, been at Cafe Nordo since uh, 2009. <laughs> it took me a second. 2009 <laughs> was when we had our first Cafe Nordo show. Uh, I started messing around with food and theater in New York in 2003, um, I was I was dating a chef at the time, and we wanted to work together. So we created a couple of shows that were pretty successful around the idea of uh, him designing a menu and the food telling the story. And we did a collaboratively developed show around um, the four courses of dinner. Um, that was really successful, and I kind of got convinced that it was I was very serious about my art then, and I was like, it's all a gimmick. People love it because it's a gimmick. And so I didn't really do very much with it, and then moved back to Seattle and was working for Circus Contraption when I met Terry Podgorski, who at, he was technical director for Circus Contraption, which was a really awesome nouveau circus that was really groundbreaking, um, that started in, uh, let's see, it must have been the late 90s, and um, toured the world. And so the first job I got when I got back to Seattle was as their managing director. And that's where I met Terry, and we worked really well together, and I ended up directing their last show, and so we ended up working creatively together quite a bit. And just found a lot of symbiosis, both in um, uh, artistic style, I guess, sense of humor, and um, you know what we kind of wanted to do with these immersive worlds, what our dreams were. And, uh, and so when the circus decided to disband, we knew we wanted to work together. He knew that I had done this food theater thing in New York, and he had a short story about a lunatic chef who was doing very theatrical dinners. And it was kind of a spoof on food writing. So he gave me a copy of the story, and I read it, and we were both like, you know what, we can just pretend this is real and put it up as if this chef is a real person. And promote it as if he's coming into town from somewhere else and he has this long pedigree. And hopefully, you know, garner a bunch of buzz for this amazing chef. And it was, the, the dinner theme was the life of a chicken from egg to platter. And in the story, the wait staff all walked around like chickens and all had chicken <laughs> names and asked really weird questions of the diners. You know, it was very silly kind of send up of uh -huh. super fine dining at its like most theatrical. So that's what we started with. Um, and it was ridiculously fun and hard. And we were using the back warehouse of Theo Chocolate. Um, and we had a great ensemble of actors that were both game to improvise at the table, like right with the people as their servers. So it was very interactive because these, you know, they're in character and they're talking to the table. 
Um, and as well as doing these more performative elements, a big processional funeral for the chicken, which when the coffin opens up, it's all filled with platters of roasted chickens, which end up on the tables. <laughs> you know, it was, it was really, really silly, and people really liked it a lot. So uh, we just kept going from there. So that was 2009, and then we did roughly two shows a year uh, throughout that time. And then almost a year ago, a year ago in two weeks, we opened this place, which is Nordo's Culinarium, which is a venue dedicated to m merging performing arts and culinary arts another arts as well. Mm -hmm. And so we get to do our own main stage shows here. Finally, we have our own kitchen after many weird and turbulent times of having commissary kitchens and then shuttling everything mm -hmm. over to a theater or to a space that wasn't even a theater where we also had to install lights. You know, we were kind of creating as we went, creating the space as we went. So mm -hmm. finally we were able to get this space, which has a beautiful kitchen, beautiful little theater and now we can offer the option to other organizations to figure out how they're going to integrate food and performance and art. So, mm -hmm. and as well as having a home for our two main stage shows a year. Yeah. So, um, do you do you, are the are the shows that you guys do typically um, devised pieces that you're creating as you go, or have you looked at any established plays? They're all original works. Uh -huh. uh, Terry and I get together, and one of us has an idea that we want to do for a show mm -hmm. and forces the other one into it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and sometimes the food comes first, and sometimes the, the story comes uh -huh. first. And oftentimes we take a setting or inspiration from film. We've done a lot of film ins inspirations, mm -hmm. like we did a film noir piece last fall. This one is definitely a 007 kind of spoof. Um, and then we've also done more immersive, oh, we call them our weird ones, that have no real reference at all, like The Chicken Show, although I guess that was a bit of a send of a fine dining, but certainly not film. Um, and our Cabinet of Curiosities show, where we took over a whole building and created a, a progressive dinner using installation artists creating different rooms that each had a course that went a story that went with them, with them and you traveled through. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I, I, we kind of think of our cocktail shows as the more kind of spoofy or nods to film genres. And then our dinner, sh our more dinner forward shows um, are these more immersive weird ones. But at the same time, that kind of gets tossed on its head all the time. So mm -hmm. <laughs> we're a little bit inconsistent. It's kind of what I, wherever the tides take us. Mm -hmm. So with food as a character, what does that mean to you? How does that become uh, it's interpreted? It's a wonderful creative challenge for me. I have been in theater my whole life. That's my background. Uh, and have been directing theater since... Gosh, I guess I was 18, and I'm so 20 years. And I, I started cooking um, for myself, <laughs> you know, <laughs> as you as do, like a creative enterprise just uh -huh. for me. Yeah. Once I had broken up with a chef boyfriend, I was like, well, I need <laughs> I to. I still want good food. I so. really still want good yes. food, and he really did change my perspective on it. So uh -huh. um, it became kind of my one thing that I could do without an ensemble of people, you know, yeah. artistically. 
And then somehow now it's yeah. what I do for a living too. Um, as sometimes, as so it goes, you yeah. know, if you're lucky, you get passionate about yes. something and then it becomes your job. Right. Um, and hopefully it's still fun, which it is. Uh, so as far as how this, the food integrates with the story, you know, Terry had given me a lot of really good basis basics when he wrote the chicken show about what he imagined chef Nordo would come up with. And so I got to kind of, take this weird story about this progressive dinner that started um, with an egg and moved all the way to the roasted chicken and then the dessert was some kind of bloody mess of viscera um, (laughs) that was actually delicious. Um, So uh, he had kind of set the stage with these weird... And in the story, there were other ones too. There was a, um, a lizard that was stuffed to look like it was walking off your plate. <laughs> you ate the lizard. I mean, it was like all these really hilarious images of, this, of these dinners. And, uh, and so I had that to kind of start with and, um, and developed this chicken show and made a bunch of weird dishes. Like that last dish was a chocolate panna cotta that was cut, that was scooped to look like livers and then a blackberry sauce that was murderously splattered all over the plate. So it looked like, you know, livers with blood splatter all over uh-huh. it, but it was delicious. Yeah. Um, so that was, and then at the end of that, so the chicken liver and blood splatter comes out and everyone's eating their dessert. And then we bring a baby chick out for them all to touch and pet because that's, you know, circle of life. Uh-huh. So it's very tongue in cheek and we get to, and not all of the menus are at all, um, uh, quite the horror show that the chicken show is, is for instance, our Twin Peaks show took place in a diner. And so I, after beating my head, like, what do I do to make diner food interesting? It was finally, I finally came up with doing all dinner food, savory food that looked like breakfast food. Oh, So we did, um, one of my favorite things we've done, which is a savory potato and chive donut and uh, that was served with a cup of coffee-flavored gravy. So it was coffee. It was donuts and coffee, mm-hmm. or it was potatoes and gravy. You know, yeah, it, was, yeah. it looked like donuts and coffee, but it tasted like potatoes and gravy. So that was super fun. And, yeah, I guess what are the, what are the things that I do for that menu? The dessert was um, parsnip and apple hash browns and uh, vanilla custard that was scrambled with liquid nitrogen, so it looked like scrambled eggs. <laughs> And then a piece of um, uh, hardened caramel with chocolate running through that looked like bacon. So it looked like bacon, eggs, and hash browns, but it tasted like uh, an apple wow. dessert with ice with vanilla ice cream and candied. That's fascinating. Is that a is that a common thing for you to kind of play with um, what the senses expect? So yes, what your eyes see and expect from the presentation, and then what yes. your palate. That is that sounds really shocking and like fun it's for your It's super mouth. fun, yeah. And when I can do that, that's super fun. With this particular show that we're working on now, um, we're doing 60s food and there's also a science-y component to it. So I am doing some modernist stuff. Like I'm making noodles out of black Chinese tea. So they're gluten-free. <laughs> they're literally just um, really, really strongly steeped black tea. Um, and then I add a sodium alginate to them and squeeze them into a calcium chloride compound. And wow. then it creates noodles. And it's they taste like tea. They look like long, long noodles. They're hilarious. 
And then we're serving that with Dungeness crab and this beautiful pork and crab consomme. So it's a weird kind of, you don't expect the taste of the noodle. It feels like a noodle. It, it you know, chews like a noodle, but it tastes like black tea. So wow. it's fun things like that. Yeah. How do you, uh, what's, what's the science background that allows you to... Like <laughs> I am obsessed with this stuff. I just read as much as I can. And, um, you know, I'm really mostly, I shouldn't say I'm self-taught in the kitchen. I grew up, my mom is a baker and she always had a catering. She always catered when mm-hmm. I was a kid. So I was around it a lot, but I didn't, I thought it was anti-feminist to know how to cook. <laughs> So I refused. As you do. I refused sure. to learn how to cook until I was in my twenties. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, it was this again. This boyfriend. Give him all the credit, I guess. Don't <laughs> don't give him all the credit. But um, but he did really introduce me to uh, amazing food. Uh-huh. I got to eat at some amazing restaurants in New York because of where he worked, and that was really opened my eyes up. And um, and then I just got obsessed. I guess it started really with the chicken show. I got obsessed with creating the things that were in my mind and knowing how to do them. And so I've read all the, you know, books on modernist cuisine and how to do the spherification stuff. And it's just like adding more paints to the palette. Yeah. You know, like I can make, I've always been able to make great soups and I can, I'm really good with meat. I can sear a steak beautifully and all of that. But as far as like how to make black tea into noodles, that just took like years of trial and error. And the first couple years I was doing it, I screwed it up all the time. It never looked right. (laughs) It was always a mess. (laughs) And it's fun to, this is a remount that we're doing. It's fun to revisit a show and remember how I was just learning when I did this menu the first time. And I couldn't, I didn't have any consistency with what I was getting right and wrong. And now it's like years later and I'm like, I know exactly how to do that, which is, And there's no stress in that little piece. But then I keep challenging myself to try and do new things because I'm not a professionally trained chef. Like the only, I'm a theater director. The thing that I have in my pocket is that I look at it in a completely different way. And what I try to do is have we have the experience of eating wonderful because it's delicious, but also um, a really theatrical. I want the food to perform Mm -hmm. and I want the reaction to be emotional and delighted, you know, rather than just being, I mean, not that there's, I love eating rustic. Like that's how I love to eat. But in these shows, the best, the best way to, to make Nordo different and to make the food something other than just a regular dinner theater where they plop some pasta down while you watch Hamlet, you know, it's, it's got to be integrated. Yeah. So that's my creative challenge is always to integrate the food, make sure it's part of the storytelling, and I will learn any technique I can to figure out how to do that better. Wow. How does that balance with the storytelling? How does one not, you know, overshadow the other? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. You know, it's... I haven't directed the last two shows. The last two shows, well, the one that's going up right now and the one we did in the fall are both revisits of shows that we've done in the past. So I didn't feel as um, pressured to direct them because I'd already kind of had my crack at them so I could really focus Mm. on the food. And it's been interesting to have a new director come in and try and figure out how to weave the food and drink in with someone who's never done that before. Um, But it's worked out great. And um, 
I, yeah, it's, it's just a little something for everybody. It means that the story has to push really fast. It means that it's got to wrap up quickly at the end because we have found over these many years of doing shows that if people get the cocktail flight or the wine flight, that by act five, they're a little buzzy and wanting to <laughs> like wrap it up. Uh-huh. So, um, so we try not to put any very complicated information in at the end <laughs> and just like make it a really good time by about, we'll do lots of things until about an hour 40 in and then it's like, got to wrap it up, make it short and sweet and make it a free for all at that point. Um, and then we also have the component of music too. Anastasia Workman, our incredible composer has been composing, underscoring every show and composing music to go with the core, the food course of food and, um, is probably my first experience with someone composing music that was funny. You know, I never really thought about how music could be, not lyrically, but musically Uh be funny. And so I feel like in the same way her music is funny, my food is helps tell the story. Uh You know, it's like a weird thing that we've, little alchemy that we've got going on. Well, it's accepted that, Music underscores storytelling and and can enhance the story being told. So yes. why not food? Yeah, you know it's another sensory art that we experience. And and from my, you know, from going from being like this is all a gimmick, the food and theater thing, <laughs> and then when we started doing this again, when I started this up again, and we were doing food shows, and everyone was so happy. I started going to theater and realizing I was hungry all the time, you know, you're sitting through the show and you're like, oh my God, it's going to be waffles or it's going to be noodles or what am I going to eat after this? You know, as soon as your attention lulls a little bit, like it's off to what am I going to eat after the show? So I wonder if it's that way for everyone or like if I, I love food a lot yeah so that is definitely the first place my mind goes always yeah always always food well and you know you've come from work and you're planning on eating afterwards or whatever what have you so um it makes sense that most people are hungry when they go to the theater (laughs) (laughs) it's just an extra bonus you know that when you come to our theater we feed you while you're here and we drink you yeah yeah so it's a it's an easy sell yeah so for this show specifically, being a remount, um, how does that change the... Have you revisited the menu and changed totally. things from mm-hmm. the menu? Okay. Yeah. Um, let's see. What has remained from the menu? Um, I was doing the, the entire first course. Well, it's not really a course. The like little amuse-bouche, get a couple little amuse-bouche when you come in. That's totally new. Um that's going to be partly because I fell in love with Mama Lil's peppers in like a deep way. <sighs> so we're doing a pimento cheese ball, which is perfectly 60s with yeah. Mama Lil's peppers. And that's going to be that. And then I started thinking about, um, like kind of got a little bit obsessed with jello shots, <laughs> which is, I, it's like every, it's like I suddenly get obsessed with jello shots and then the, my favorite bar, which is around the corner, starts doing jello shots. I'm like, it's in the air. Jello shots are in the air. But for the 1960s, oh, you know where it totally. came up? Yeah, because when we did the menu before, I was trying to do, instead of these Chinese black tea noodles, I was trying to do um, a gelatinized, like in a little tiny bunt pan, 
um, a gelatinized wonton soup. A, nobody wants to eat gelatin like that. Like, nobody liked it. B, I did not know the science of how to make it warm well enough, and so I kept trying to make it warm, and it was just falling apart. It was a nightmare. So when we started working on this menu again, <laughs> I was like, I am going to get that right. I'm a better cook now. I know how to do it. I'm going to get it right. I, I did one test on it, and I was like, no one even likes this. Why am I trying to do this? Yeah. So I still have these tiny little bun pans from the last run for this deconstructed wonton soup thing I was doing. And I was like, I should just do jello shots in those bun pans. Oh, so, yeah. um, and I thought about flying and how bloody, I always think about bloody Marys when I fly. So we're doing a bloody Mary jello shot, oh. <laughs> which is in this little that bun pan, amazing. which is going to be so funny. <laughs> You know, it's got little celery and pickled asparagus inside, and it's like, hopefully, hopefully if I get it right, it's almost clear tomato water. Uh-huh. Um, That's so funny. Yeah, it's going to be, it's going to be a little, and again, a little mind-bending. I love it. Because it's not going to look like Bloody Mary, but it's going to really taste like Bloody Mary. So, that's going to be fun. Um, and that's a new addition. We did the blinis for the Russian course last time. But they're going to be different. You know, I, everyone, people's tastes change in five years. We try to do buckwheat blinis in one of our micro kitchens, which is our test when we invite mm-hmm. some people over and test the menu. Um, and they were just too, I guess, earthy for the palate. And like within five years now, we tried buckwheat blinis and they were way more popular than the plain blinis. So we're doing buckwheat blinis this time. Yeah. Um, I've also fallen in love with Elena's yogurt. So that's, we're going to do that instead of creme fraiche on top um, with three different toppings. And I think they are, we did do a house made sauerkraut last time, which we're doing again. Uh, the new one is I'm doing a smoked salmon meringue on top of one oh so it's a God. crispy meringue okay, when, i'm gonna come see the show <laughs> every time Good. so reserve me a seat for everyone you got it man okay keep keep telling me yeah telling so me. that the, so those hungry. are two blinis and then the third blini is um this uh beet caviar oh God. And okay. each one of them has their own Elena's yogurt flavor on top, too. So it's a blini with a flavored yogurt. Um, like a, One of them's a saffron orange. One of them is um, a caraway. And one of them is dill. Um, and then on top, they have their little toppings. And so that's almost the same, except for this weird meringue, salmon, smoked salmon meringue that I'm making. Um, my husband is going to listen to this when he edits it. And he's going to just <laughs> know what my face is. And he will awesome. be laughing right now. Laughing. I love you, dear. We are going to see the show, obviously. But yeah. you won't enjoy any of the food because I will eat your share. Great. Well, send extra. <laughs> um, so, yeah. Then the, then the black tea noodle course, which I told you about. Um, and then the entree. So, we did a meatloaf last time. Which was really cute, and it was more like a crepinette. It had a, it was, um, had uh, pork belly and beef and chicken liver, and it was wrapped in call fat. So it had this beautiful striation. Again, not everyone likes call fat. I love it. <laughs> um, but we started thinking about it, and we're like, what is even more, like meatloaf isn't really fancy, and on this air, like my meatloaf was fancy, but meatloaf it is a 
thing isn't fancy. And so um, we are doing roast beef, which you never eat roast beef anymore, you know, but like yeah. a beautiful cut of sirloin tip, like roasted to medium rare, garlic all smashed in there, like old school style. So we're doing the, we're doing a roast beef with uh, mashed potatoes that are like half butter, half potato and <laughs> <laughs> the way they should be. Yeah. And, uh, and I'm making, I call them pingles. They're, they're, they're made out of peas, but they look like Pringles and they're crunchy like a Pringle. Um, so it's peas and potatoes and beef, you uh-huh. know, classic American kind yeah. of Americana kind of dish. And then yeah. dessert, my mom, the baker is making from repast bakery is making, uh, Twinkie, basically, um, that we're stuffing with an intrigued chocolate infused bourbon whipped cream. Oh, God. <laughs> they're going to be great. <laughs> so wow. that's the menu. Yeah. Man, that is just, uh, that's so cool. So you st- we're saying that you were studying old airplane menus. Yes. And like getting inspiration from that. Yeah. Yep. And roast beef or prime rib or that kind of thing all over it. And served yeah. with served with silver, you know, and linen. Right. And an au jus on the side. You yeah. know, the, a real dining experience yeah. they were. So, well, flying was yes. an elite experience. It yes. was not something everyone did. No. And these lounges were amazing. Yeah. And, you know, I had a friend who told me this story about being on... Um, one of the going up into an airplane lounge when he was a little tiny kid and, um, and Tony Bennett was up there and he like walked right up to Tony Bennett and started talking to Tony Bennett as a wee little child. And that's his memory of, he actually remembers a plane lounge Uh and you know, he's my age. He's, 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 he's 40. Um, and, but they were still going when we were little kids. Mm -hmm. I don't, I don't ever was in one, but I just love that story of him just precociously walking up the stairs and going and meeting Tony Bennett in the airplane lounge. Um, I think it was Tony Bennett. I'm pretty sure. Um, but yeah, we don't have anything like that anymore. <laughs> no, no, we do not. Like, unless you're on like a cruise, things. maybe that's like the maybe, closest, yeah. which is yeah. also a whole nother. Even that. There's yeah. coupons for that now. So yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wow. So, um, is it's an international flight then? It sounds like. Different courses are different. Yes. So we have a course to, to correspond with each spy. Oh, sweet. But it's okay. pitched in the story as uh, you're, on an interna- you're going on an international tour with this, in this flight with this menu. Uh-huh. So, you know, it's a fun kind of way of integrating the story a little bit. Yeah. And there are dance numbers to serve every course. Awesome. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty fun. Wow. Um, do they, are the actors serving then? Yes. Is it, it's immersive in that way? Oh yeah. All the actors are we make all our actors and... serve. Usually there's one. Well, there probably, aren't we all, that's what we all do anyway, so. Yes. That's so, <laughs> you'd be fine. amazed in Seattle how few actors have waiting, waiting, have table waiting experience. Well, they experience. don't have to because in Seattle all theater rehearses at night, so yes. you can have like a normal day job. And, yes. But and it makes a big world, difference. Like, I couldn't believe it when we started casting people, you know, all these years ago and we're like, Nobody has wait, yeah, table waiting experience. That's crazy. Like we give them their first table waiting jobs. It's crazy. That is very um, Seattle. That yeah, is unique it's wild. to here. Mm-hmm. Wow, interesting. So um, yeah, so usually one or two actors get let off the hook because it doesn't make sense for their character to be serving. <laughs> <laughs> Which they're like, yes, 
<laughs> um, <laughs> but we make them do some side work, some prep work to begin with, setting up the space and breaking down the space. But mm-hmm. yeah, part of the deal is you have to haul trays up and down those stairs wow. and serve people, mm-hmm. which is why we have like the best attituded actors in Seattle because yeah. nobody would do this unless they had a super positive attitude. <laughs> and we try and compensate them well too. <laughs> That's positive. Yeah. Um, are you establishing a repertory that you'll continue to remount different shows in so, the future, do you think? Or? The thing that one of the many thousands of things that Terry and I learned from Circus Contraption who would build a show and then they would run it here for a number of months, then they would take it on tour, and then they would put it in New York for a month or so, and then they would bring it back here, and they would run it here for a while, is there's no reason to invest so much creative energy into a thing that then just dies. Um, And so much of theater is like, we're doing a show, it goes up for two weeks, and then we put it down, and all the stuff gets thrown away, and then all of that work never gets capitalized on again. Mm -hmm. So we're against that. (laughs) Um, So we are building a body. And so far, we have remounted three shows. We've redone the chicken show, sauced, and then to save her tomorrow, uh, this spring. And they're arguably either our favorites or the uh, the Cabinet of Curiosities show is probably my favorite show we've done. But we took over Washington Hall before they started renovations. So we were really able to take over the whole building and do wow. lots of stuff with it because they were just about to renovate the whole thing. So that was really a moment in time that it would be hard to recreate. Mm-hmm. Um, but our thought is we will probably do one original. And also, we're starting to take more time with the creation of the shows. Now Terry and I are running this thing as a business full time. We have a lot of other things to take care of, and so we're finding our creative processes slowed down a little bit. Mm-hmm. So for us to do an original show once a year and do a remount, you know, do another one that's a remount is makes a lot more sense yeah. than to try and bang out two shows, two new shows a year when we're also, you know, doing so many other things. So. Yeah, yeah. Uh, is it just the two of you? Running, we are the, the two full time staff, and then uh-huh. we have um, a pretty much full time sous chef um, that does a lot of the heavy lifting in the kitchen. We have a small admin staff of part time folks. Um, Opal Peachy, who's our adorable member concierge, uh, does a lot for us. So she's she's both doing our member services because we do memberships for the whole year. Um, as well as she's starting to work in the donor relations because we're a nonprofit, so we do some fundraising too. Um, so she's starting to work in that area. And we have Mark as our PR guy and um, Cheyenne Warren, who's an amazing admin. And Anastasia Workman is definitely part of the management trifecta mm-hmm. as she's just in her music world as a music director. Um, oh my gosh, who am I forgetting? Yeah, thinking about it as a business and mm-hmm. thinking about... If someone was to spend a bunch of time creating the perfect hairbrush, mm-hmm. they wouldn't only sell the perfect hairbrush for three weeks. They would right. try and build a following for that hairbrush mm-hmm. so that people couldn't live without that hairbrush. So we try and think about everything we do here. I mean, there's a definitely a nonprofit and a creative and an artistic part of it insofar as we pay our artists we more than they make in most places. Um at least most smaller theaters mm-hmm. around town. And uh, we are really committed to new work. And at the same time, we're also 
trying really hard to create something that's sustainable. Yeah. So we can employ everybody. And so that's, yeah. So the idea is to create a body of work that we can then um, both, both cycle through, revisit favorites, as well as giving us the kind of breath to put a lot of work into the new shows. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is this open as a restaurant? Ever, no. As it's- so we are about to embark on a new fun project. The fundraiser for it, of which is ending in just a few hours now, and we think we're going to make our goal, um, which is to open up a teeny little bar at the very front of the space. Mm-hmm. This one, for this season, it'll be, it'll be called the Aviation Lounge, and it'll be tricked out like a little airport bar in the 1960s, 60s music, 60s inspired food. Uh-huh. Um, and so that'll be open... From 4 o'clock until showtime, so we'll do a happy hour, uh-huh. and then on nights we don't have a show, it'll be open from 4 o'clock until 10 or 11. So we have a little bit of a presence as a small bar, and then with every season, so when To Save Her Tomorrow closes and we launch into our summer season, and we're looking at, uh, you know, Mark and Opal are doing a tiki-themed, so we'll have it it'll turn it into a little tiki bar, um, so every with every show and every kind of season, we'll change the theme of the bar. Fun. It'll be a teeny little mini Nordo experience up front. That's so fun. Yeah. That's awesome. Little food, little <laughs> nosh, drinks, mm-hmm. hopefully another stream of revenue. Again, trying yeah. to keep this thing afloat in a way that requires us to do... We all, we'll always have to do some f- fundraising because ticket price just doesn't cover everything. Yeah. But And we want to keep our tickets under a, around or under $100 mm-hmm. for the whole Meshuggah, mm-hmm. which just doesn't cover really well locally sourced food as well as preparing our artists. Yeah. So we'll always have to do a bit of fundraising, but we also want to try and really activate the space and make sure there are other revenue streams that are keeping everything going. That's really exciting. Yeah. I hope you make your goal. Thank you. you That that sounds like a really cool project. Very close. Yeah. 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 Um, Are there elements of burlesque storytelling to what you do as well? I know Mark and Opal are pretty. Yeah. So in the, the Nordo um, main stage shows, not very much. Mm-hmm. Um, they, But we do, in the in-betweens, we've had uh, Mark and Noble's show, Bohemia definitely had burlesque in it. Uh, we did a partnership with Verlaine and McCann, mm-hmm. McCann and Verlaine, Verlaine and McCann, um, who do the um, burlesque Nutcracker and mm-hmm. Alice in Wonderland at the Triple Door. Um, so we have had burlesque in here, and we have an aerial point, so aerial is possible. But for our shows, not so much. No, they're pretty much, um, they're, they're a totally different kind of flavor. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you, what are the, some of the biggest challenges you face in creating a story that supports the food and food that supports the story? I'm interested to hear more about like yeah. kind of what that process is, I guess, from At some, coming up with the idea <laughs> to executing the idea. Sometimes we both get both Terry and I get tired of setting things in restaurants and bars. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, And it's really important to us that there's a reason for our audience to be there. Mm -hmm. It's really important to us that they have, if not a role in it, then, you know, we don't uh, interact with people insofar as we call them up on stage or anything, but we want them to be there for a reason. Mm -hmm. Um, So... So that the character of the audience is justified in the space. Yes. And sure. so our, our characters, our performing characters are serving people and it makes sense. It's not yeah. arbitrary. Got it. So that is a tricky, 
that is a sticky wicket. Uh-huh. Um, and there's only so many different ways you can reinvent that. We think, and then we do another one, and we're like, oh, I like this one too, you know? So, um, and we did kind of try and turn it on its head for Don Nordo, our launch production uh, that we did up here in the space. And it was, I mean, I loved the show in many other ways, but that specific part of it, I really missed it. Like, I want, I want the audience to have just a perfectly reasonable reason to be there and eating and watching. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that gets, t- that gets tricky. Um, so I would say that that's difficult. Um, the food parts of it that are tricky, I mean, sometimes it's just like nothing blanco until the 11th hour. Like we have these test kitchens already scheduled and I won't have any idea I'm just like nothing. I got nothing. You know, writer's block, basically. Mm -hmm. That's how it was for um, Something Burning, which is the one we did with the diner food. Like, I just was like, I had zero. And then Mm. it was the day before the micro kitchen, and I was like, bling, and the whole menu just like came out in one shot. And it almost never changed. Like, it was just done. So, so, you know, but that's normal creative art problems. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It's like... Is it ever going to come again? Am I done? Like, is, I think writers worry about this. Everybody worries about this, right? It's like, is that the last thing? Is, did I squeeze all of the creativity out of me? Out of me? Because I don't ha- I don't feel like I have yeah. any anymore. And then, you know, it eventually comes back. Well, that's good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> At least yeah. it has so far. <laughs> yeah. Um, when, in working with the, the cast and crew, does that change it at all? I mean, how much collaboration is there in creating the story and um it depends on the show really Mm -hmm. um we terry and i usually do have it pretty well mapped out before Uh they come in uh sometimes actually the first run of to savor tomorrow we had no idea how it was going to end until (laughs) about a week before we opened we tried lots of different things um but that's pretty well but most of the time we really do have a almost finished script by the time we walk into the first rehearsal and a pretty clear idea of where we want to go with stuff. And the collaborations really are Anastasia coming in with music um, and working with Kelly Morgan Stevens, who has been our stage manager slash general ma- um, house manager, or I mean, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Gosh, what is she? Expediter. She's the one who creates the, the clock on when to tell the kitchen to fire the next course because we've gotten to a certain point in the play. So that's a crazy puzzle job because if the actors are going, sometimes things really need to get served right away. Like they, they're hot, they've got to go, otherwise they'll melt or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and if something funky happens up on stage and we're suddenly behind by a few minutes, that can make a huge difference in the kitchen. So... Yeah. She puzzles that out and spends the first couple of weeks kind of trial and erroring how to make sure everything just goes like perfect clockwork. And um, that's because she has as much a passion for the theater as she has for restaurant world, which is a very rare person. Uh-huh. Um, she loves service and loves making it wonderful. So she has been a huge mm-hmm. asset. Um, we hired her as a stage manager and didn't know that she she was like, 20 nothing when we hired her too she was just a little babe in arms and um and now she's grown with us and has just been a real huge asset mm-hmm. to 
making the, the puzzle, the clock of it work. Yeah. What do you hope people leave with? What's the... What's Delight. The, yeah. I mean,